I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Giro Recap Podcast. We love doing the previews and the recap podcasts. We had to wait until this Sunday. We've both been a bit busy um, for us to both have some time in the diary. Apparently, Benji, you know, I had kangaroos looking at me with with Joey in their pouch the other day in Canberra. Benji, living in West Flanders, had a tractor run into his car. So just West Flanders things, I guess. Uh, how are you going today, Benji? You're, are you sleep deprived at the moment? I know you got to balance work and the podcast life uh, more than more than I do. How have you been going? Uh, we almost. Yeah, we've got to find a way to slip in this Giro recap because it was a memorable edition. Yeah, I'm not overly sleep deprived, but I've noticed that over the last couple of months. And it's not necessarily related to the podcast, mainly due to the fact that we're in a lockdown now in Belgium. COVID stuff makes me need to work remotely from home. And doing that, I've lost the discipline of waking up earlier to start working, to have an evening for myself and actually be able to do something. And I've pretty much gained the ability of waking, of like staying up quite a long time at night. But obviously, every time I regret it when I need to wake up early. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, a two-edged sword, I'd say. But not overly sleep-deprived. I'm surviving. I know you've got a bit more trouble with that, knowing that the uh, summer hour is now uh, gone in, in Europe. And that has caused you to be able to get on these podcasts even an hour later which is like 3 4 a.m for you all right two hours later because it became daylight saving as well in australia <laughs> at the same time so vuelta has been vuelta has been brutal that's why i keep calling it the giro <laughs> in the daily recap podcast but this giro wrap-up podcast like our vuelta podcast like all our pods is brought to you by our partner lacole they partner with us Throughout the Giro, a lot of you have enjoyed uh, using that Giro discount code that was available at the time uh, throughout the Giro d'Italia and learning about Lacole. We enjoyed them bringing us the interview with Payer Bilbao. And if you want to check them out, they produce road cycling performance apparel only, just road cycling. That's what they focus on. And we saw that with Bilbao having a beautiful uh, Giro d'Italia obviously wearing the Lacole kit at Bahrain McLaren. If you want to check out their kit, it's at www.lacole.cc, L-E-C-O-L.cc. The link is in the description of this YouTube video if you're listening on YouTube and in the podcast show notes. But just like with the Tour de France wrap-up show, I think it'd be useful. I mean, it might be useful for you all to bring up on Pro Cycling Stats, which we often use. Uh, to bring up the Giro stage winners and uh, what happened throughout the race because in a three-week race, it is quick, easy to forget what happened at the start. So like the Tour de France, I'm going to ra- recap each of the stage winners and maybe give a, a quick pricey over what happened uh, in that stage. So stage one was the ITTV, the windy one from Monreale to Palermo, obviously won by Pippo Ganna, Filippo Ganna, his first of four stage wins. Uh, he won that. 
became leader wearing the Maglia Rosa after stage one, beat Dennis, beat Campanats and Dowsett and co. And I think Rowan Dennis was really affected by the wind. And we saw on this stage that Geraint Thomas was looking in magic form and that this wind and the time selection should have really affected GC. But in the end, it didn't because all the riders that went at a good time didn't really end up being contesting GC at all because they were pulled out of the race for whatever reason. I should, sorry, preface this by saying the favourites going into the Giro were Thomas, Cleve, number one favourite. Second favourite was Simon Yates or Mitchelton Scott. And then I don't even know who the other favourites, Kelderman, Nibali, Fulsang, I think were third, fourth, fifth favourites. Maybe I'm probably forgetting someone else that has also pulled out. So Gunner, Marty Rose, pardon, Kreuzweig as well. Sorry to Kreuzweig. Kreuzweig was third favourite. Stage two is to Agrigento, a stage they finale they've used before. In, uh, I think Rico won there in 2008. And a similar profile rider, maybe a bit punchier, won that Diego Ulysses. Uh, he wins a Giro stage almost every year, the Italian, on UAE. Second and third were Peter Sagan and Mikel Honore. So Sagan looking very good. I was surprised he was up there, and that was a portent of things to come. Stage two, Sagan latest stall out is looking quite good. Ghana kept the Malia Rosa. Stage three, Etna already. So we've got no real pure sprint stage yet. ITT, punchy finish on Agrigento. Now a mountain finish up Etna. This was a magic stage in hindsight. Even better because... The GC action was on fire. They were all attacking each other, etc. Nibali, uh, Kelderman slipped up the road. And I think what you've got to remember on this stage is Kelderman gained, I think, ooh, 26 places on GC. And he finished the stage 12 seconds out of the full Sang, Nibali, Castroviejo, Pozzavivo group. And oh, a good 23 or 24 seconds ahead of Almeida. So Kelderman dropped them all on this finale. And Jai Hindley was back in the Louis Menchies group, 19th, with a minute, a minute 37 back, behind Bilbao, Almeida, etc. And I can't remember whether he ended up, with, whether he was pacing for Kelderman. But Almeida moved into the Malia Rosa. Jonathan Caicedo, the Ecuadorian, I'm pretty sure it, was, it might have been rainy, or maybe that was, uh, no, that was not advice. Ecuadorian did well this, this year. He won the stage from a breakaway, Caicedo, for education first, the Ducks getting their first stage win in those jerseys when I think he dropped Visconti. Stage four to Villafranca Terena, the first of four stage wins from Arno de Mar, uh, just dominant in this year's year. We're going to talk about that in, in a second after I've gone through all of these. He beat, I'm pretty sure he beat Sagan or Sagan came second pretty much every time to him, uh, and he certainly did on this stage. And also a good stage profile, a nice cat two climb in the middle. I don't, I don't remember this being a boring stage at all, actually. 140Ks with a climb in it. Stage 5 from Cam- Camigliatello Silano. Filippo Ganna won from a breakaway, dropping Thomas de Hent. And or maybe it was that uh, that Movistar rider, Benji Rubio, Einar Rubio, when de Hent, de Hent refused to work with him to chase down Ganna. Ganna, his second stage win on a mountain stage in the break. Joao Almeida, his, sorry, his second day already in the Maglia Rosa Um and he kept that for just the best part of two weeks. And this was another really interesting stage, I think. And the GC group pretty much came in all together. But, yeah, Almeida kept rap- picking up those bonus seconds uh, as well. So Ghana, an incredible stage win, 34 seconds ahead of the GC group. Stage six, Arno Demar's second win. 
also like quite a uh, hilly stage, I think, not a pure sprint stage. It was That was ahead of Michael Matthews and Fabio Fellini. So that was a really impressive win from DeMar. Sagan wasn't up there. I think he was in bad position. Stage 7, Matera de Brindisi, Pancake Flat, DeMar back-to-back, wins Stage 7. Stage 8, this is the Alex Dowsett redemption stage going for that World Tour contract next year from Giovinazzo to Viesti. The Vieste, the break was allowed a fair gap, actually, and I think he was with Puccio, Holmes, Ross Kopf, and, and Dowsett and Brandle worked well, the Israel Startup Nation guys, to get. Uh, they, they worked over the other the other riders in that break, and Dowsett TT'd away for his second year in Italia stage win. Joao Almeida, at this point, was still in the Maldia Rosa. Let me just check his time gap. It was 43 seconds out of Bilbao and Kelderman, and... I can't believe I've already I've already uh, had an oversight, Benji. Geraint Thomas on on Etna had crashed back on stage three and abandoned shortly afterwards, and uh, Simon Yates had been dropped on the Etna stage after going into favoritism for the Giro for all of forty minutes, and then we later found out that he'd pulled out with COVID. So the two favourites had pulled out, and then Kreuzweig tested positive. I can't remember Benji whether that was after stage eight. I think that was on the first rest day. Um, so <laughs> that, you always forget what's happened in the first week and focus on the last week. But, yeah, unbelievable. Thomas Yates and Kreisweig pulling out, which really opened up the race in the last week. Stage 9 to Rocarazzo. Ruben Guerrero won from a breakaway, um, and I don't think he was uh, a particular favourite of the other riders. Stage 10 to Tortoretto. Peter Sagan dialing back the clock. What an unbelievable stage win from the breakaway. and. Yeah, that, that's a stage that I'll definitely be going back and watching and I'd encourage you to as well. Stage 11 to Rimini, a flatter stage, but still some climbs in it. Uh, Arno Demar beat Peter Sagan once again, his fourth stage win. Arno Demar in 11 stages, unbelievable. Stage 12 to Chesanatico to Chesanatico, Jonathan Narvaez from the breakaway, the Ecuadorian for Ineos, dropping, I think, Mark Padun in a break after he'd Pudun had had a mechanical in the rain, not of ice winning. Still Almeida in that Malia Rosa. Stage 13 to Monsalice. Diego Ulisi won this stage from a flat sprint. I cannot remember this. Oh, no, I can. This was a brilliant stage design. This is, we're going to talk about this stage in particular, Benji. This is the pancake flat one, except for two climbs in the last third. And then it was all about whether Damar and Sagan could get over those climbs. Um, or whether it was going to be Ulysses or the GC guys. That was a brilliant stage design. So uh, we should talk about that profile. Stage 4, ITT to Valdo Biadene, Ghana 1, and Joa Almeida proved that the Stage 1 ITT was not a fluke and extended his gap, now having a minute on Kelderman, 2 minutes 11 on Bilbao, and McNulty moved into 4th, 2 minutes and 23 back. So... Gana, uh, Almeida came sixth on the stage, and Dennis had a nice performance too, 26 seconds behind Filippo Gana. But that was moving into the last week of this year's year. Almeida still in that Malia Rosa, kind of doing an Alaphilippe, but I think even more like impressive than Alaphilippe and more of a realistic threat. But then going into stage 15, it was to Pianca Valo. And I think there's a lot of criticism of Jai Hindley, Benji, remember, for sitting on the Ineos train when uh, on the Stelvio stage and, and getting the stage win. Don't forget what happened on Piancavallo. 
Kelderman and Hindley drop Almeida with Hindley pulling the entirety of the Piancavallo climb. Big numbers. Sunweb destroy this race, split the group up, and Tao Gagenhart's the only rider that can stay on their wheel. He pulls no turns and then sprints around for the stage win. Kelderman goes, I think, 15 seconds behind Almeida. Hindley moved into third, seven spots up. Same with Gagenhart moving from 11th to 4th. They're both three minutes back on Almeida and... This starts the uh, the big third week of Almeida keeping the Malia, two Sunweb riders, second and third, and then Gagenhart nipping at their heels fourth. And, yeah, what a performance from Hindley on Piancavallo. In hindsight, I mean, they couldn't do anything in hindsight differently, but it's interesting how he pulled the whole time and they didn't attack Gagenhart because he wasn't the threat. They were worried about Almeida. San Daniele de Frilli, I always struggle with that one. Stage 16, one in a breakaway, Jan Tratnik, the experience, the now more punch than Ben O'Connor in a head-to-head sprint in the last kilometres. And then stage 17 from Bassano del Grappa, where the Pole factory is at the base of the uh, Monte Grappa climb to Madonna di Campiglio, Ben O'Connor winning that stage, looking very strong. He was in back-to-back-to-back breaks, I think, he had a very, very strong third week and O'Connor for NTT. Almeida kept the uh, the Malia Rosa and I think gained some bonus seconds on the uh, on the other ride. No, he didn't, but he was still like 17 seconds ahead of Kelderman. I'm not sure where he was. I think they, they kind of rode this this one in because uh, he's all the same time as Micah, Gagenhart and Hindley and that was setting up the last big couple of tests, stage 18 and 19, 18 was Laghi de Cancano. This was the Stelvio stage. This is where Dennis destroyed it, I'm pretty sure, and dropped Kelderman. Kelderman still went into the Malia. Hinley won the stage, and but now GC was looking a lot different. 12 seconds behind Kelderman was Hinley, and Gagenhart was 15 seconds behind Kelderman. Bilbao was not 1 minute 19 back, so... Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Stelvio maybe a little bit again. Stage 19, Abiate Grasso to Asti. This was the protest stage, bit of a joke stage, but still a good win from Joseph Cherny for CCC. And then stage 20, Alba to Sestriere, where Gagenhart confirmed that he was going to win this year at Italia, head-to-head with Jai Hindley. Rowan Dennis splitting the race up on Sestriere once again, and then Gagenhart beating Hindley in the head-to-head sprint. Hindley going into the Malia Rosa by all of half a second, and then in the ITT in the last stage in Milan, Filippo Ganna winning that, his fourth stage, 32 seconds ahead of Campanas. Joao Almeida, another nice performance in fourth, but Gagenhart destroying Hindley in the TT, 40 seconds into him at least, and winning his first Grand Tour, winning the Giro d'Italia. Angie, what sticks out from, from that wrap-up, that long one? What's the most surprising performance or the, what did you forget about that you thought, oh, that actually was really interesting at the time? Well, when it comes to forgetting, I'll give something else first. One thing that keeps being hammered for me is that Rohan Dennis won this Grand Tour for Gegenhardt, and that is hands down the case for me. If Rohan Dennis was not in that team, I don't believe that Gegenhardt would have come up on top here. What is special about this is it's a small detail. I've, I've posted on Twitter a few weeks ago, and it's already the initial time trial. You've got Gegenhardt and Hindley in a starting position in that time trial. And if you look at the time where they start, we've got Hindley getting the 
better time to start in that time trial because we know that the weather changed throughout that time trial and we know that the GC favorites who started last had a big disadvantage. Now, we got to remember that Hindley started roughly at the moment where the weather was still okay. And if we compare that to Gegenhardt and see where he started in that time trial, we see that Ineos obviously chose because that was the most obvious choice. But in hindsight, it's kind of funny to think about. Ineos started Ghana, Thomas, and then is around the weather where it's better for the cross tailwind. Uh, well, just having tailwind on the descent section where the major differences were made. And if you look at the latter starters of that stage, including Gegenhardt, who obviously couldn't start at the, uh, let's say, ideal moment, because we look at Dennis in that time trial and we see that he's moving across the road because of the wind, but we got to remember that he had a lot of head, uh, well, tailwind because of that on the descent section. And therefore, I think the ideal moment in that time trial was still the moment where the wind affected the riders in that straight line. And as a consequence, it would have been a difference between Gegenhardt and Hindley in the last week if that time trial was ridden without wind changes. And obviously, it's just hindsight and it, it's not important, but it's that small detail then that you realize in the last week that every single detail in the first week already counts also for people that were not anticipated to be the GC leader because before the Giro, Hindley and Diegen Hard were obviously not leader of their team. And both teams adapted in a certain way. Hindley was able to stick with Kelderman on most of the stages, keep himself within the top 15 of GC most of the time. Unlike Egan Hard, who started, I think, 69th on the first stage in GC and just went up and up every single stage. And with Gegenhardt, they had to make that switch between Thomas and Gegenhardt on Etna. And I haven't checked back, but I swear that Castroviejo had a better day on Etna than Gegenhardt did. So I'm wondering whether Gegenhardt worked for Castroviejo on Etna or they went free-for-all, both of them. I recall him doing a bit of work for Castroviejo, though. So... That's why I'm wondering how much that influences the outcome of the eventual Giro as well. If that gap would have been bigger into the last time trial. But in the end, I'm obviously thankful that the gap was not bigger because it gave us one hell of a time trial to look at in the end as well. But once again, I think Dennis is uh, the man that won the Giro for for Ineos. And it, it keeps showing up every single time that I look at these results that I don't think that Gegenhardt would have won otherwise. And Benji, how how surprised were you that Dennis could do what he did on Stelvio and on Sestriere? Because a lot of people were surprised by it, and I wasn't, to be honest. He's not that big a guy. He's like 72 to 74 kilos, I think, maybe even lighter. He's back-to-back before Ghana won world, champs, uh, world champ in the ITT, in the hour-long ITTs. That's how long the... Uh, time trials were that he won. And I want everyone to remember what happened in the Tour de Suisse 2019, just a year and three months before that Giro d'Italia. I want to talk about two stages, or one stage really. Going into stage nine, first on GC is Egan Bernal. You know who's second? Rowan Dennis, 22 seconds behind him. Stage nine, 
It was from GOMS to GOMS, 102 kilometers. I'm going to read out this profile, see if it rings any bells. Newfoundland Pass, 13.3 k's, 8.5% to 2,500 meters altitude descent. San Gotardo, 12.1 k's, 7.5% to 2,100 meters altitude descent. Furka Pass, 11.5 k's, 7.5% to 2,400 meters altitude descent. And then flat section to Ulrichen. You know who what the the results were for that stage? Hugh Carthy first after a long range attack. Second, Rowan Dennis. You know who was with him? Egan Bernal. So on these long, gradual climbs, and altitude doesn't really seem to affect Dennis too much. I think he lives in Andorra. He's obviously really good at them and world class. And so we shouldn't really be too surprised by his performance on Stelvio. I think he he really would struggles in the Vuelta style climbs and a lot of the the Tour de France style stages where you got to have real punch in the last uh, kilometer. But against a diesel like Bernal, up to altitude, and this was Bernal who then went on to win the Tour de France a month and a half later. Like how how crazy is it, Benji? Now to look back at that, and and do you think that is? Do you think that's a thing? Like do you think Dennis is Dennis Dennis? Do you think Dennis <laughs> is actually now like a top? five top 10 climber on those big altitude steady climbs in the world? I'd put him maybe in the top 10, 15. And that is because, well, we haven't seen it against the Pogacar and the Rogliches of this world. But I do believe that, like you say, these climbs, these gradual climbs with less percentage and much longer in total, a bit of an endurance climb, I would say, fit him so much better than a steep climb. I put the guy on Mur de Hui and he never gets to the top in the top 25, 30, 40, I'd say, uh, for a whole peloton. So I don't believe in that. But if you put him on a major climb like this, uh, I think that it benefits him a lot. And I think that, therefore, the Giro fits him better than the Vuelta as well. And I've got the same feeling with Bernal, kind of, because... Bernal is obviously a very different climber, very different in a, in shape and in the way that he climbs. But I do have the feeling that with Bernal, the lower percentages and longer climbs fit him much better than a Fuelta-style climb. And I think we saw that in the Tour de France as well. On Well, it's hard to look at this Tour de France, but I feel like we can still look at the stage in the first week and so on to take a look at what he did there, and he was also a bit worse on those steep climbs compared to Roglic and Pogacar, who have and generally mastered that. Yeah, and Port and Lopez, but I would still look at Pogacar and Roglic for the, the kings of the steep 8 to 9 kilometer climbs, the ones you see in the Vuelta right now, and perhaps Moncalvillo is the Vuelta climb that I would point at directly, together with maybe I don't know, uh, Havalambre last year, just the very steep climbs in the end, those those 13%, 10% average climbs over six kilometers. Uh, I think we saw a lot of them in the Vuelta last year, and I think that benefited Roglic a lot there as well. And that is also the reason that on one of those stages, we saw Valverde rise up again last year in the Vuelta, but that's a, that's a bit of a ghost right now. But all in all, yeah, Dennis, better at those longer climbs, better at those lower percentage climbs. And GC I think there's, threat? Oh, 
I don't know. It's the big question people want us to answer. People ask for us to answer. Can Dennis be a GC threat for Ineos next I year? I think, I think he can. In principle, there is no reason why he couldn't, given what we know about this Tour de France parkour, which is going to be announced, I think, tomorrow. If there is a lot of individual time trial, if the climbs are like the ones we said, long and steady, up to altitude, and we don't have if we because it's it's very easy to lose two minutes if you lose twenty to twenty five seconds on these punchy climbs and that racks up and then two minutes is a lot. But if there's not those sort of climbs and it's like the Giro, then in principle I don't see why Dennis couldn't be a GC contender for Ineos. Um, given what I he think. can do in the time trial. But I don't think he will. I don't think he will because I don't think he wants to. I think he, he's really good and he showed how good he can be in that role. In, almost MVP of the Giro for me. Unbelievable comeback for Dennis um, after maybe the disappointment of the World Champs ITT. He won that Giro for Ineos. But I, I think he's going to be happier just smashing it on the front maybe for Great Thomas or keeping him safe and performing the same role. So maybe it's a moot point. But, yeah, do you, do you think it's more Benji because there's other riders who are strong? they just got too many GC contenders already at Ineos? Or you just, yeah, why don't you think it, it will be that way for Dennis? Exactly the first reason. I think Ineos has the luxury but also the, the difficulty of having a lot of GC riders next year. Let me just shortly name them. Bernal Carapaz. We have super domestiques in the form of Amador the plus Castro Viejo maybe as well if he's in the form of Tour de Lain. Then you have that Dennis in there, but you also have Martinez going there next year. Pitcock yeah, perhaps not next year yet, but the years after potentially he could be a GC leader there as well, knowing what he did at the Giro U23, Richie Port being there as on paper a super domestique. If that will actually happen, we'll see. I think it will be a super domestique role. You're per- perhaps endowed as an Australian and hope that he gets a bit of a leader role somewhere, but um, there's no Santos to under, so I highly doubt that. But um, Sivakov is also in that team. We look at the Tour de France, a lot of bad luck. We look at the Tour de Lain and the Dauphiné, he's one of the best climbers in the race. So I believe that if he gets back to that form and he forgets about this Tour de France that, well, was a bit of a shame with all these crashes for him, then Sivakov might end up being one of the better leaders on the team of Ineos. He's currently Russian. He's going to keep his Russian nationality until next year and then change it to French. So on paper, he's the biggest hope for French people for a Tour de France victory in years, <laughs> which is kind of kind of, kind of surprising, I guess. Um, Sosa is on that team, but uh, I'm in doubt about Sosa. We we spoken about it yesterday on the, on the Vuelta podcast. I just don't believe in it too much anymore. And I think he's running out of contract this year, so I'm curious... No, he's not. He's staying on 2021. So let's see. Can he can he pick it back up? Looks like he's getting murdered on the flat mainly before the climb start. But I'm not a expert of the Sosa mystery, but that's what seems to be happening for me. Then Drain Grain Thomas is in there as well. Adam Yates. I don't believe in Adam Yates as a GC leader. Uh, other people do. I just don't. And um, the reason that I don't is that, first of all, he misses his time trial ability compared to other members in the team of Team Ineos. And as a follow-up, he is not great at 21 days in a Grand Tour without consistently performing. And 
if we look at one week race, he's much better there, and I believe that that's what he's what he's golden at. And races like I don't know a Tirreno, a a Basque Country, a Catalonia, those are the races where he can do well. UAE Tour as well, I think. Sami Yates won it this year, but I think that Sami Yates can do so as well. Um, just those races. So they've got a lot of GC leaders. I don't think Dennis fits in the picture of being one. I think he fits more in the picture of being a super domestique for one, as he's someone you can count on when the hour of madness is near. So that's my my mind on Dennis right now. Let's talk about a man who also was going into the Giro as a domestique for Remco. That was why he was on the on the start list back in when the Giro was announced, the revised schedule, Joao Almeida, Remco then crashes. We saw Almeida doing a magic job for Remco before lockdown and some of those Spanish one-week races, setting him up on climbs. Joao Almeida, he lit this race up and, and really the, the scenes in Portugal were fantastic to see. Everyone was so excited for this young rider's performance. 22 years old. He's just under his, I think, five foot ten, muscular, strong kind of rider. He's ended up coming fourth on GC. He's come second in the Giro d'Emilia, third on GC at the Vuelta of Burgos, which I think was won by by Remco. So he was a minute and twelve behind Remco. So I think he only lost that time on Lagunas de Naya, uh, where he fought back. He is a really, really strong climber. And Lagunas de Naya, now that I'm reminding myself. When Almeida gets dropped, it is not the end of the story. He will keep fighting, keeps pushing. Even when he's pain-facing, he just rides a really steady tempo. And he's smart too, Benji. That's what really struck me. 15 days in the Malia. 15. Only then coming, losing, I think, the podium position or coming fourth in the last couple of days, I think, on Stelvio when Hindley and Sunweb attacked him. But he will deliberately drop himself a little bit early before he blows up and then he paces consistently using his TT ability. So next year, Benji, what do you expect for Almeida? Is it Remco comes back, he's back to being maybe a super domestique for Remco? Do you think he could get leadership somewhere or do you think he's a nice rider to have where Quickstep can kind of do a... He can be a sub, uh, a leader that can step in if Remco has a bad day or just a nice card to have in the back pocket. Obviously, his time trial ability is no fluke. Like, Do you think he's a legitimately like top-level TT rider for a quasi-GC contender now? And what do you expect for him next year? So, firstly, we've got the fact that Remco is currently out with that injury, pretty heavy injury. We don't know what the consequences will be in his career for the rest on paper, he should be able to recover fully. If he recovers fully and gets back in the form that he was in Burgos and so forth at the start of the season, which is relatively believable, I don't think that we're just going to see a Felta San Juan, really. I'm not sure what the travel restrictions around COVID are going to be in January, but it's not looking too bright that way. If we look at the season of this year, he started in San Juan, then went to hmm, Algarve? Second, yeah. He went to Algarve, and perhaps in February or, or March, we will see him for the first time again on the bike, Remco. So I am wondering at what level he's going to be able to return after that injury. If he gets back at the same level that he was at at the start of this season. And let me remind you, Remco Evenepoel, like we 
tend to forget now what he has done this season, but the man started San Juan, won the ITT, won the GC. He was dropped in an echelon in Alto Colorado stage. That was the one with the huge mountain range at the end. And he and Sevilla, the Colombian guy, Oscar Sevilla, they paced back the entire peloton, them alone, two of the people that were up front with the likes of a Brandon McNulty and so forth. And that front group got caught and he was able to finish fifth after uh, after Flores, who seemed to have been a bit worse after that San Juan in the upcoming races. In Algarve, that's the next race he started. He started with a mediocre first stage. That was a flat stage though, so expected. His second stage was Alto de Foya. He won that. That was a stage he won where Lopez had a pedal issue, issue or a chain issue just behind him and he was able to ride away that way. But perhaps also if Lopez didn't have that issue, he might have won the stage still. So don't want to take away from that victory. He wins that stage. He gets third on the Mayao climb finish, which is with Lopez winning the stage, if I recall correctly, Sharkman getting third or second. Because, yeah, Remco was third. And he finished that Algarve in first in the time trial as well. And he wins the GC of Algarve. So two stage races done. Three stage wins and two overall victories. Then the next is Burgos. He starts Burgos on the mountain stage. Picon Blanco, he finishes first. He drops everybody. And those are the likes of Giro favorites. And he beats them by a minute or so. He gets that lead. And then there's only Lagunas and Nela left. There's what Sosa is rising on. The rising phoenix of Sosa on Lagunas de Nela. And Evenepoel ends third. Evenepoel wins Burgos. Three stage races, four stage wins, wins all GCs. To the Polonia starts, obviously the unfortunate accident in this first stage. As a tribute, he does that wonderful solo in the Bukovina Tatsanska stage, the fourth one, and takes the victory. That is also the GC taking him home, and therefore he has done four stage races. He won all four of those stage races. He won five stages in those four stage races. And then he started the Lombardia, on which he was with the five best riders on the Muro Sermano. And he was looking extremely good at the top. So you can say what you want. He was probably going to compete for the victory during that race if he didn't crash. If he would have won it, that's a what-if. And what-ifs don't matter in the situation. So I won't stand still by that. But if Remco Evenepoel was at this Giro, I believe he would have done... Really good. Really good. But again, that's a what if. Now, if we compare that to Almeida, who has been working for Evenepoel this whole preseason and performed close to Evenepoel, but not at that level, if that difference is there at the start of next year and the first three months show exactly the same thing, then Almeida is a super domestique. Because the Kearney cannot split their team in two for the GC. They don't have enough climbers and they are not going to change to having enough climbers. That's what Lefebvre said and so forth last year in the first year. They want to see what they can achieve with the team they have. And if that is not enough, they'll get more. They already got Cataneo and also, what's his name, Masnada, who doesn't seem to be the perfect teammate looking at this Giro. But if we look at next year, I do not believe that if Evenepoel comes back the same way he ended, by winning every stage race he starts and getting at least one stage win in them, then he's the head GC leader of that team. 
And to me, that is deserving, even with what Almeida put on the table here. We can look at this Giro in many ways. We can look at it on the what level and so forth. But we also got to look at it on the general level that I still believe, despite the watts and so forth being being pretty high, that this was on not on the level of the Tour de France competition for me. And as a consequence, despite Almeida probably being one of the better TTers as a GC leader as it stands right now, we have Evenepoel in that team that was second in the World Championship time trial last year. And he was European champion time trial last year. And he beat everybody on the climbs he did on 2020 soil. So if Evenepoel comes to a Grand Tour with, as you say, the Tour de France with 80 kilometer time trials, then he puts four, five, five and a half minutes into people like a Micah, into people like a Carapos, perhaps. And if you got four, five minutes from time trials, then then you don't need to be the best climber. Then you can be just a pretty mediocre climber that can follow the group and drops with about a good kilometer to go, loses 10 seconds on this climb, 15 seconds on this climb. And as long as you don't drop from that group, then you're not going to have that issue. Now, we don't know what he is at on a 21-day stage race. That's always a mystery. You know Almeida has that. So perhaps the idea for Quickstep should be that they try and have both at the top in the same way Bora did with Conrad and Micah, but this time with good GC leaders like Evenepoel and Almeida, and try and see what they do in the first week of a Grand Tour. And as a consequence, I would believe that um, I would believe that even with those two leaders being separate at the start, they would probably figure out who is better. I don't believe that Evenepoel will ride for Almeida. In no way do I see that happening. Although. Ah, it's hard because no. I think he will in one day races. I think maybe in. I think they'll use them as co-leaders in Liège, where you know Almeida has better punch than Evenepoel on the flat. So you use Evenepoel uses TT ability to make other teams chase, get Almeida to sit in. There's not a lot of people who can beat Almeida in a reduced bunch uh, sprint. Um, I don't think, or an uphill sprint, he's really good. Maybe out of that Liège group. He's also got TT ability. I think, as you said, you just mentioned it, Benji. It, it behoves teams now. You never know what can happen. Someone can have a bad day. If you have the possibility of two GC leaders, it is good to try and keep them both into contention into the third week uh, or as long as possible, just in case something happens to the one of them and you can transition to the other one. Now, a Sunweb is going to segue nicely, it can cause problems. But I see no reason why Quickstep will like I, – I don't – I think they will use Almeida like TJV use Bennett or Coos a little bit in the Vuelta. They will not pace with them really, really hard in order for Almeida to like lose time because he's blown up. I think they'll kind of keep him safe. This is what Quickstep can have at the Tour de France next year. Alaphilippe, Almeida – Bagioli, Cavagnar, Dries Davidens, Remco, and James Knox, Mikel Honore, Peter Seri. That is a fucking strong all-round team. Um, big, <laughs> good engines. Probably I'm missing out on a, probably another engine in there, but that is 
for stage hunting in GC, that is a, that is a crazy strong team. But moving on to that two GC leader strategy, Benji, we've spoken about Almeida and and Dennis, the Sunweb. Did you catch that Sunweb YouTube video, Benji? I think did I send it to you? Did you watch it? The twenty minute one they put up on YouTube of the last few stages. Yeah, I watched that and I found some really interesting parts in there that the way DDS talks to riders and so forth and the remarks that the DS, I think Luke Roberts was saying in the video were a bit, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I would do it like that because when they were talking to Kelderman, then I believe that they were sitting in a room. They were talking to Kelderman about what the plan was for the Stelvio stage if I would be explaining to a rider what the plan is for the next day, I would not wait till the morning in the bus to explain what the stage looks like and additionally what the plan of the team could be and all the all these scenarios. I would try and play it play it forward and be prepared for every single situation and perhaps make sure Kelderman is prepared for every single so situation. And maybe they didn't show that. Maybe they did that and didn't show that, but it looked like he just went into the hotel room of Kelderman spoke to him for like two minutes say like well tomorrow is Delvio well um we're gonna try this and um yeah that's it <laughs> did it so, change your opinion did it change uh, your opinion on how Sunweb should have ridden the last three stages Stelvio and Sestria well I think we already had a, a pretty solid opinion on what we thought did it change that it no it didn't change it and it, it made it stronger it did because did it change that yeah, because it was clear they never fully believed in Hindley until he was like pulling on the Malia. They were like, "Oh, this!" <laughs> like they didn't really think about Hindley properly as a GC threat until way too late. Stelvio was somehow a, a big surprise that Dennis like was doing so well, and they're like, "Oh, Dennis will be done soon," and, and that Gagenhart was there. So, knowing what we do know about how they sort of used thought about it, and then how they used Hinley and Hinley's just terrible TT setup. By the way, always it, it does make a difference having all your, your, your riders having a good TT setup. You never know what can happen. Knowing what we know now in that video and me thinking about it more, I, I actually, Dutch fans are going to love this and they're going to say, I told you so. I think they should have dropped Hinley back to help Kelderman on each stage um, if they really wanted to win the Giro because they seemed incapable of formulating a strategy to combat Ineos with Hindley against Dennis and Gagan Hart. They hadn't really thought about it. And the in that way, Hindley wasn't set up to attack Gagan Hart in Stelvio early. On <laughs> We saw on Sestri Air stage, the DS was like, there you go, Jai, um, Gagan Hart's getting dropped by Dennis. Just sit on Gagan Hart's wheel. And this was on the second repetition of Sestriere. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> Shouldn't he be attacking him? Um, because you've not dropped him back to help with Kelderman. So I think there's some percentage probability, whether it's 5%, 50%, 20%, I think it's much less than 50%, but it's somewhere maybe between 25 and 35%. I think if they drop back Hindley to pace for Kelderman the entire time, maybe there's that 25 to 35% chance he wins the Malia and doesn't lose uh, that 90 seconds because he ended up losing the GC in the Giro d'Italia by what in the end because he did pretty well in the TT. He lost by 90 seconds. Good at Hindley had made that difference, pacing full for Kelderman. 
maybe. And I'm not sure it helped Kelderman's mental state either. Uh, we saw the car foostering around back and forth between Hindley and Kelderman. So it did change my opinion. Um, on that. Are you surprised by that, Benji? Do you think I'm just trying to play both sides? I'm trying to appease the rampant Dutch fans? I don't know. It, I feel like it's more of a hindsight arg- argument to me. And I don't believe that that decision could be made at the moment itself to draw back Hindley because you don't know how hard Kelderman would collapse on the Sistery Air stage as a follow-up. But as you say in the video, they were clearly not believing in Hindley. And even on the time trial, I felt like they were talking to Hindley like he was going to lose that time trial anyway. So oh, yeah. If, yeah, if I was a Diaz, I would be like, come on, man, you can do this. You can do this instead of, well, you don't have really a chance, but yeah, okay. <laughs> so that that's how it felt to me. And as you said, they were also less prepared on on stuff like Dennis being better. They They had not anticipated stuff like that. And as a consequence, the guy in the car was like, well, um, oh, Dennis is going to be gone soon in the middle of the Stelvio. And <laughs> that was not the case. So, um, yeah, just making assumptions instead of calculating the worst potential situation is also something that I noticed from that Diaz in the car. And I believe that their biggest issue, and I don't want to hurt this guy's, this guy's feeling or anything, but I think that their Diaz just made mistakes. And, or at least wasn't prepared for these situations enough because we said on the podcast of the evening itself that there was enough time in the race to think out every single strategy. If you look at the clips that Sunweb uploaded, it looks like he was just experiencing the race and not thinking about anything while 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 being in that car. But my commonness towards the situation of Kellerman dropping and so forth should be pre- prepared for that before the race even started. And you should have a strategy ready for when that happens because we said it before we Stelvio. anticipated it yeah but not just Sestria before Stelvio we were like yeah somewhere dropping Almeida is great and all but Ineos are going to try something with Gagan Hart um we um, maybe I'm misremembering things but I, I seem to remember us saying yep. and believing that Ineos were going to try something and yeah like we weren't that's I mean because he was there with he was there with uh, the Sunweb boys on Piancavallo two stages before. It's not like he was some anonymous dude at that point. He beat Hinley in, on that sprint when Hinley just, like, he f- set that uh, climb on fire. So, yeah, it, it it wasn't a surprise to us, at least. And as you say, he wasn't, they just seemed a bit deer in the headlights. They didn't really have a, uh, a plan for Hinley, etc. So, that's why it, it is hindsight me saying that, but now I have more information in that what I now can literally see into what was happening in the Sunweb team car, and I'm like, they were not equipped to deal with this difficult scenario, so they should have opted for the least complicated thing, and that was Jai, drop back, car stay with Kelderman, dig him up, G him up, Hindley, ride full with Kelderman in your wheel, and... Uh, see how you go because the dual leader thing they didn't seem capable of dealing with that and then Ineos Ineos were just too good um but another man I want to talk about Benji actually no just quickly so we don't go on for too long we should talk about it before I move on to Damar Tao Gagenhart and Jai Hindley you think they're GC contenders in uh, any of the grand tours next year Benji it's hard to guess I don't believe um that Gegenhardt is all-out leader if he's in a team with 
the rest of the squad of Ineos. And that's going to be the hard thing that Ineos has to deal with now because they've got Gegenhardt as an extra GC leader, what they probably didn't anticipate yet at the uh, start of the Giro. And as a consequence, perhaps they will need to think about how they split up their teams for Grand Tours again. But I don't think that this Giro gives them an advantage over the likes of a Bernal, a Carapaz, a Green Thomas. Mm, I don't know. No, no it's way. Ah, uh, but I don't know. I I don't believe in a future Grand Tour for Thomas, and the reason for that really? is that yeah, there's so much talent on the board right now, and there are better climbers than Thomas. He had his peak form in 2018. I don't believe that he's going to get that form in any Grand Tour from this point onwards. And perhaps I'm being a bit shady towards Thomas, but but I just don't believe in it. And there's a lot of riders that I think are off the charts for upcoming Grand Tours. My my favorite shark in the waters, Vincenzo Nibli, I don't believe in a podium for him in the future, in any Grand Tour with the talent that is now on the table. And this is discounting the likes of an Avenipool who didn't ride this year as well. And... There's plenty of others that we saw slowly but surely creeping up this year. We had Pogacar obviously reach the top already, but so much is being brought forward from the younger levels of cycling that I even proposed to make a gray jersey for old people instead of having <laughs> a white jersey for young people recently. And it might genuinely be a good idea looking at how these Grand Tours are done. Valverde could perhaps take it in the Vuelta at some point. So, honestly, I think they should do that. Just make a jersey for people above 30 years old, make the color gray, and implement it in all Grand Tours. And that would be fun and it would give an extra thing because right now we won't see a white jersey except for when Roglic is parting in a Grand Tour. And Pogacar made sure that he had a white jersey with him. We also saw, well, in the Giro, the winners, the first two riders in GC were... Younger than 25, I think. Is Gegenhardt younger than 25? I think he's about 24, 25. Okay, I think he's going to be ineligible next year. So, um, yeah, as a consequence, you've got all these youngsters taking the prizes. And I think that's going to get even even more clear in the next couple of years that the youngsters are taking the top compared to the people that have been in the sport for a while now. Chris Froome's comeback next year, well, it was already in the Vuelta here, but... His comeback at Israel, I don't believe in it. It's not because I don't believe in Froome getting back to a level that is capable of winning a Grand Tour. I don't believe in him being able to compete with all the youngsters that are moving forward and are taking control of the sport right now. And I love that, the changing of the guard. And yeah, I'm so looking forward to see the battles between a Pogacar and perhaps a Jai Hindley if he finds his way forward and Gets in nah, there, but see, he has the real happen. problem with a time trial. I don't believe in that. And if he doesn't get a wonderful time trial ability, then Jai Hindley won't be up there in a GC for me. Unless it's like the Vuelta, perhaps, which often leaves the time trials behind. There's three ways to gain time in a GC. Time trials, dropping people... No, sorry, four, four ways, I guess. Time trials, dropping people early on a climb and using a proper separation to gain like a minute or something on the time sprinting for bonus seconds and maybe getting a little gap at the end on a punchy finish and your team creating a gap in crosswinds or flats or a descent or whatever 
Hindley can't TT. Terrible TT. His position was like Quintana's. He's not punchy in the finish at all. He's could conceivably gain time. The only way he'd be gaining time is um, getting separation early on a climb. And is he a good enough climber to do that versus the likes of Pogacar, Lander maybe, etc.? No, he's not. So my answer, will Gagenhardt or Hindley be on the podium of Grand Tour next year, is no. That's not a knock on them. It's just the level of the GC competition in 2020, 2021 is so much higher than in, say, 2018, 2019 across the board. Um, so, yeah, on the spot, Benji, yes or no. Hindley and Gagenhardt on a podium in a Grand Tour in 2021, yes or no? Nope. Okay. So we're in agreement there, but... Yeah, we read Gagenhardt at Ineos, he's out of contract. It's difficult. Would I pay him the moon? I've already said no, but again, he's got he's a proper British rider. It's, it's been so fantastic to see him win. He's well-liked. The marketing stuff will play into that as well, but then you've got Pidcock coming through. Difficult decisions for them. But moving on to Arno Demar, four stage wins, FTJ train dominating Guarnieri, Guarnieri Scottson, Demar, Beating Sagan on multiple occasions, but not really any other sprinters. No Groenewegen here, no Ewan, no Bennett, no real quick step uh, sprinter apart from Ballerini and Hodge. Hodge looks – Hodge is not going to get that contract renewed, unfortunately. Um, where do you rank DeMar right now, uh, Benji? I don't want to step on our toes to the off-season sprint rankings podcast, but – did this move up DeMar in your estimation of him into the, the top tier of the big boys, Ewan and uh, and Bennett? Well, it obviously didn't worsen it, that's for sure. But <laughs> just the general feeling towards towards DeMar is that he won a lot of races, an insane amount of races this year. He won one of them, I think, against top competition. That's Milano Torino. Perhaps you could say that in Tour de Wallonie, Ewan was also there, but... Ewan had a really weak Tour de Wallonie, so I'm not sure if I want to count that for uh, for Caleb Ewan, to be honest. I think he was second on stage two, though, so that's the only stage where I really saw Ewan f- push forward on that on that stage race. If we compare it to the competition we had in in the Tour and so forth, perhaps the more is closer than in all the last few years to the top of sprinting at the moment than ever before. I believe completely in that. He's closer to the top than ever before. I still believe that we've got different kind of sprinters. We've got sprinters that can go full muscle, and we've got sprinters that have that real acceleration boost, like Caleb Ewan, to try and swerve around people and get past people in the last possible second to have the ideal timing and so forth. And I believe that Caleb Ewan is still the best sprinter in the world, but we got a look at um, at the unfortunate accident at Tour de Polonia. Kronewegen was for me the best sprinter in the world up to then. And oh, no way. Jakobsen beat Kronewegen on half the occasions that he rode against Kronewegen this year. Yeah, I don't know why you're <laughs> saying no way, but I still believe that Kronewegen was the best pure sprinter compared to Caleb Ewan, and Caleb Ewan had the advantage of having the acceleration to beat him on some of these stages that didn't really have that um, that full longer sprint, that proper 200 meter, 220 meter uh, sprint, perhaps compared to a sprint with Ewan that 
yeah, perhaps a bit shorter or perhaps is in the wheels more. I don't believe that Ewan is the, the rider that takes a headwind on every single day in a sprint. So, yeah, I, I believe that I had Grunewagen and Jakobsen on a, a similar level throughout the season. Jakobsen perhaps being a bit less than Grunewagen because he had less of a history, but Jakobsen was moving really forward this year. And I believe that if it wasn't for that crash that it sucks to say, but I think he would have been at the top of sprinting somewhat at the moment. Yeah, I think he was looking like he was going to become the next Kittle level rider. I think on the flat, pure sprinter, he was just, hopefully he comes back, but he was he's just so quick. And I thought Jakobsen, I thought he was already above Gronewegen. Um, I think the mark clearly now is better than Sam Bennett. I have him, <clears throat> I have him marked above Sam Bennett. I think the Mars got a, yeah, he's just better on the climbs, better. And that segues into our next point about profile design. DeMar just di- didn't just win <clears throat> flat, pure flat sprints at this year's Giro. He won, I think, uh, an uphill rise, one of the one stages where Kreisweig and Nibali had attacked off a little bit at the front in the last 1,500 metres. There was another stage where there were pretty hard climbs beforehand, two, two climbs, like 5Ks at 7%. I don't think Ewan would have got over them. So that's a tick in the box for Arno Demar. He did pretty well in some of the Wallonie climbs, better than Caleb Ewan did as well. That's maybe a, a longer form discussion for the the off season potty in the rankings. But I think Demar is clearly in the top three now. Whether you have him above or below Bennett, I have him above Bennett. I think the quick step train effect has to be accounted for and is a real thing. I know the FDJ train was strong here, but. Yeah, I think Damar is is very good on a variety of terrain, and um, we saw that when he was beating Sagan in stages that should have really suited uh, Peter Sagan. So Damar, incredible performance. Do you think they FDJ take him to the Tour de France next year, Benji? I think it's locked in. They should, and it's perhaps because Pinot's inconsistency is so blatant now. We don't know what Pinot will do in the future. He said that he wants to change his career in some way to not be disappointed every time he goes to Grand Tour. <laughs> so that's basically the story. So um, I believe that Demar is going to the Tour de France next year. Obviously, if it's absolute trash at the start of the season next year, that could totally change. But if he has similar form than he had at the Giro going into the Tour de France next year, then he's going to be one of the sprinters that goes for most of these stages. But he's going to have proper competition then in comparison to the Giro where he was running against Sagan, the rider that could not really get consistent top fives in the, in the Tour de France sprints. And yeah, I think Sagan is a real note is that we saw him move up that way and we saw him slowly but surely move up into a proper form in the Giro. We could say that the Giro form of Sagan is better than the Tour de France. I'm pretty hands down, down about that. And yeah, we were talking about profiles as well, right? Yes. Did you like the Giro sprint profiles compared to maybe some of the Tour de France ones? Hmm. I there's those stages with a couple of climbs beforehand makes it interesting. Is Demar going to get over it? Is Sagan going to get over it? Is it hard enough for Ulysses to try something, etc.? Yeah, those stages are ideal. But on the other end, Demar's probably one of the only sprinters that could get over them. You and a few years ago could have done it, but he slowly but surely become more of a pure sprinter and less of a sprinter that can get over climbs because I swear Ewan won 
want proper hilly sprints in his past. And I think Hatterdam was a perfect example of that every single year. I think Bennett won Hatterdam this year. I could be wrong. It's one of the two. Um, could be Ewan as well. Um, but all Ewan won Hatterdam. Okay, Ewan mm-hmm. won Hatterdam. Yeah, you're right. I remember now. Get the fuck uh, not off for the first time. <laughs> Sorry for bashing Australia once again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe that, like you said on that one stage, in uh, stage seven, eight, I don't know, I don't remember which stage, that flat stage with the two climbs where we had the discussion of whether Conrad and so forth should go back to the Sagan group and whether they should, whether they should help out Sagan to try and take the stage. Well, that stage was perfect because that's the kind of tactics that make it so perfect to mingle about and to talk about and to think about what could happen in this kind of stage. Even that mountain stage in the first week where there's one mountain in the middle of the stage and that is basically a 140-kilometer one with a flat finish, that was an ideal stage for me as well because on the climb you would see first Sufiani drop, Gavidia drop, then you'd see the likes of... The Mar dropping, but more in the descent part than the climbing part, to be honest. And as a consequence, he was a bit behind. He got back to the group and was able to finish off that stage. But that action on the climb and in the descent to try and get back with the sprinters makes the race so much more entertaining. And it makes a shorter sprint stage entertaining because otherwise, if you got a 100-kilometer flat stage with a sprint in the end, you're going to have most likely 96 kilometers of pretty boring races. If you put a climb... It doesn't need to be a big climb, but some climb in there to make it more difficult for the sprinters to find an all-out sprint, and you make the whole stage interesting. And I think that will increase the numbers when it comes to viewership on on TV and watch time overall. And that is what is kind of lacking on some of these other stages that were perhaps a 260-kilometer flat stage. I don't want to talk about the protests again or anything, but... When it comes to a sprint stage, this should not have been in the Grand Tour in the first place. But when it was in, then it could have changed the outcome of the race a tiny bit. But I don't think it would have in hindsight. So that's um, that's a small detail aside. I believe that sprint stages should try and make themselves... Well, that organizers should try and make sprint stages as entertaining as possible throughout as well. To make sure that people don't just tune in for the last kilometer. Which on most sprint stages happen. But on the other end, you've got people that are pure sprinters and you shouldn't disadvantage them in any way. And those sprinters should also have an opportunity and therefore you should still have those purely flat sprint stages. So yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit difficult, but that's at least what I see when it comes to the sprint stages. And shortly before I throw it to you, what I notice when it comes to the Giro is also these mountain stages where you've got the biggest climb as the second last climb and then you finish on a smaller climb in the end happens every single Grand Tour that is the Giro and last year we had it with Ponte de Legno not exactly a climb in the end but there was a major climb just before it and then they finished on a bit of a false flat uphill of 10-15 kilometers we had it on the Monte Avena stage on 2019 as well we had a major climb the Passorole as the last second last climb of that day and then in the end, we had the Monte Avena climb as the last one. If you look at the years before, it just it just gives it more and more. And perhaps 2018 is the real difference there where, yeah, it's, it's still true. The second last climb is still a, a smaller climb, but it's still higher than the climb towards the finish line. And the action is forced to happen on that second last climb instead of the last one. And that's why a stage like the Stelvio 
brings absolute madness. And one final example is the one from 2016. I think it was, yeah, this one, Sant'Anna di Vinadio. It's a bit of a smaller example. You've got the climb the Colli della Lombarda, which was a solid 20-ish kilometer climb. And then you've got the descent to a six to seven kilometer finishing climb. So very similar, very similar way. And I think that improves the entertainment on that second last climb already. And that brings the all-out chaos on the last one as well as a consequence. Yeah, I think they did pretty well in this year, designing uh, interesting stages. Even the long mountain stages, there was a lot of G- action in the GC. Sometimes it is out of the organisers' hands. You've got to remember they can't predict what the GC fight is going to look like in the third week of a Jit Grand Tour. So much changes. And maybe if Thomas was five minutes ahead, maybe on that third week there would have been nothing happening on uh, Stelvio. It would have been a neutral race. And maybe... Yeah, they just all rode it in and sprinted at the end, same with Sestria. So it's sometimes the GC situation can just make the race. Uh, but I think that was all we had for this Giro wrap-up. Obviously, um, fantastic win for Teo Gagenhart, second uh, Jai Hindley. Oh, second Keldon. Was it second Jai Hindley? I'm already, I'm already <laughs> yes, losing the plot, Benji. <laughs> I've already changed in my mind who should have been the GC leader for <laughs> for Sunweb because I decided they should have gone back to Kelderman. Sorry. Gagenhart first, Hindley second, 40 seconds back. Kelderman third, his first Grand Tour podium. Still a good result for Kelderman. He's off to, I think, Bora next year. He's leaving Sunweb. Hindley staying there. Fantastic Giro for Almeida. Big result for him. Bilbao fifth. We haven't mentioned him, but a lovely backup after the Tour de France coming fifth in the Giro. Full saying, should never ride a Grand Tour again as a GC leader. Obviously, that experiment. I mean, if he's not coming in the podium on this Giro, then it's never happening. So, yeah, that should – he skipped the age for this. It didn't work out. Um, seven minutes back and never really looking likely either. And he had his teammates riding for him a fair bit on some of these stages too. Nibali, not a great Giro. One to forget too. Um, really just not competitive. He was down in seventh, eight minutes back. So, yeah, maybe Nibley transitions into a stage hunter next year. I'm not sure. Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. Just go to a does. Grand Tour and go to a Grand Tour with the form that you have perhaps at this Giro and just lose 20 minutes on the first day, 30 minutes yep. on the second day, and then just hunt for stages. And, um, yeah, you're right. A lot of good news stories here. Uh, Dowsett getting a stage win. Hopefully that helps him get a contract. Ben O'Connor got a great a stage win. Bit of a shame he didn't get a, a longer contract, um, to be honest, but he got a contract then at Ajua for one year. Uh, be interested to see what he does next year. Quick step are looking really strong. They shouldn't bring Masnada. I don't think they'll bring him um, to their A priority Grand Tour. I think Knox and Honore. Honore is looking really, really good. Uh, the Danish rider for De Koenig. He's just got to watch it. Him, and Al- him Almeida, Knox, Remco, Seri, Brice Devenens. Everybody. <laughs> just disgustingly strong. Just so strong. Um, you got to watch out for them next year. They're all so young too. <laughs> it's terrifying. Except for Brice Devenens. He's like, he's like 40 years old. Um, <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> isn't he? He's not 40 years old. <laughs> Three Stevens is really old, trust me. He, it was his first his first World Tour win this year. At, um, oh, yeah, he's uh, 37. What? Yeah. Uh, oh, I know, my I God. Know, 
you're not even proper Belgian. You don't even know the exact age of your Belgian <laughs> riders. I don't even know. <laughs> I know Yarn Nick. He's like nearly 40 years old and he, he's only won seven wins in Cadell Evans Road Race. This year was his first, I think, his first um, World Tour level win. So, yeah, he, he's actually like looking better this year and last year than ever in his career, three Stephen Evans. He was doing so well in Lombardia for, for uh, Remco. But, yeah, quick step ones to watch for next year. Uh, it was a very memorable Giro. A lot of stuff happened. I hope we did some justice to it on this podcast. Thank you to LeCole for supporting the pod throughout the Giro. Make sure you check out that their kit at www.lecole.cc. We've been having rave reviews from everybody. We love seeing on Instagram, etc. you guys showing us the packages of your LeCole kit. Um, Benji's probably going to have to be wearing it a lot more now that his car got totaled by a tractor. Um, Benji's car was stationary, by the way. I think it was just an errant tractor, but I didn't ask too many questions about it. Um, but I'll let you sign us off, Benji. Um, this year, I know we've got the Vuelta straight afterwards, but we wanted to, to do it justice. Comment down below your most memorable moment from this year, and then Benji, the one and only Benji Nice, and will take it away. First of all, thank you very much for sticking with us on this year. Thank you very much for being supportive of our podcast and. Yeah, that's basically it. We're going to do more and more in the next season as well because we're looking at this now from a standpoint of a very condensed season into one package and we've got a few more stages to come from the Vuelta. We're going to try and fill up the off-season with some interesting concepts. If you've got ideas for that, throw it at us. We're trying to make a bit of a shortlist that we can go to if we find ideas really, really good and viable to talk about for 50 minutes with it being useful for you all. And yeah, that's basically it. Thank you very much for being a part of this. And ciao. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.